Hello, everyone. Welcome to Creation.Live. I'm your host, Trey. In each episode of this show, ICR scientists gather with subject matter experts, apologists, and other special guests to discuss pressing issues, whether that be ICR's current research, something new that's come to light in the scientific community, or something else entirely that ultimately impacts how science points to our Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope that these conversations are encouraging and enlightening in an increasingly chaotic world. I have with me today, Ivana, my co-host, and I have Dr. Job Martin, mm -hmm. and we have ICR's Frank Sherwin. I will let our viewers and listeners know that you are the founder of a Biblical Discipleships Ministry. Right. But before we talk about your ministry, uh, can you talk a little bit about yourself? Um, I know that you have an interesting move into the creation science. I understand you were a dentist? True. I was a dentist. Went to University of Pittsburgh, College of Dentistry. Got out of there in 1966, height of the Vietnam War. At that point, I was uh, an evolutionist. I was uh, looking into Zen Buddhism, which was popular back then. And I was agnostic. Maybe there's a God, maybe not. So that's how I was when I got out of dental school, went in the Air Force, and um, I was the dentist for the 89th Military Airlift Wing. That's the presidential fleet. So it was a nice place to be during the Vietnam War, Washington, D.C. And uh, my wife was a casualty nurse. As a matter of fact, we met in basic training at Shepherd Air Force Base. And uh, she was a Christian. I was not, but I knew how to pretend to be a Christian. So she thought I was a Christian because I thought that probably was important to her. Um, but then actually, uh, I prayed a prayer as an agnostic, Zen Buddhist agnostic on my first day in military training, sitting in the officer's club. I just said, okay, God, if you're up there, you have two choices. You can show me the girl I'm going to marry or you'll see the wildest Air Force officer you've ever seen. I thought, whew, nobody heard that. I'm going out and live it up. So I walked off the base, walked into the motel where the military had put us, and there's this girl talking on the phone in the lobby, and I thought, whoa, she's beautiful, I'll get to meet her. So she hung up the phone, I walked over. I said, uh, didn't even introduce myself. I said, hey, if you're not doing anything tonight, why don't you come down to my room? Not a good thing to say. I mean, even <laughs> 56 years ago, it was not a good thing to say, okay? But she ignored me completely. Next day I see her on the base, I'm a captain, she's only a lieutenant. So after ordering her to salute me, because I had the highest rank, well, actually I didn't have to order her. She, she thought she had to, so she did. But then I ordered her to go out with me that night. So we went out and I told her I was gonna marry her. And I decided, I think the God of the Bible must exist. Because that was the very day I prayed that prayer is the day I met my wife. And I had no intention of getting married. I told her I was going to marry her quite a few times, and then I asked her quite a few times, and I finally said, look, whenever you're ready to get married, call. I'll be there. Okay. But anyway, but that's what got me started as a Christian. Well, then, oh, so now I'm an, a theistic evolutionist at this point. I still had the Big Bang, billions of years, all that. Never could have been a flood, covered the whole world. When I became a theistic evolutionist, I then got offered a job at the dental college, Baylor, as a professor. So I became a professor of dentistry, and my first lecture was on the evolution of the tooth from fish scales, because I'm still an evolutionist, but I'm a Christian, so I still believed in evolution. Well, 
Two of my students challenged me after that lecture. Dr. Martin, would you please study creation science with us? We believe the whole universe is about 6,000 years old. We believe a flood covered this whole world uh, maybe 4,500 years ago. Would you study that with us? I didn't even have to pray about it. I said, of course I'll study that with you. Now, what am I thinking? These guys are back in the Stone Ages. How Crazy. Did, yeah. How did they get in dental school? Doesn't everybody <laughs> know the scientists have proven billions of years? And right. they're telling me this whole thing is 6,000. Yeah, I'm going to study with them, okay. Well, it took almost five years for me to go from being a theistic evolutionist to being a biblical, young earth, global flood creationist, which is where I stand today. So that's how I got onto that. But then uh, these students, as part of studying about this whole young earth idea, they asked me to prove to them how a bombardier beetle could evolve, which got me thinking about animals, okay? Right. So I'm studying this bombardier beetle. They brought me textbooks, different things, and I didn't see any live ones. And I began to realize, you know what? That insect needs all its parts. You can't have a partially evolved bombardier beetle. I mean, it, it either has all its parts or it's going to blow itself up every time it mixes these chemicals that have this violent reaction, all right? And I began to realize, well, if there's one animal that couldn't possibly evolve, that means it needed God to put it together from the first. And all it takes if, is one. Yeah. yeah, and if there's one, why not all? And then the next one they had me study was a giraffe. And, and why it doesn't blow its brains out when it bends its head down to get a drink of water. I mean, so really, what got me solidly convinced I can trust the Bible, I can trust Genesis, uh, it was really three things. It was God's Word, and it was studying the assumptions behind evolution, which I didn't think there were any, but I, I didn't know how to spot them. My, my, my students taught me how to spot them. Look, You know, you look for certain words. We think... We believe, uh, this suggests, this is probably, there's consensus. That means they don't know. Right. And when I started looking through the literature, the evolutionary literature, those things are all through there. So I began to realize their assumptions aren't valid. It's all in their head. And these animals couldn't possibly evolve. All of them, anyone that you study, plant, animal, human. Now, God's made some backup systems. I mean, we can have our appendix out and still live and different things. But essentially, there are basic, essential parts they have to have. You can't have a partially evolved eyeball. Mm -hmm. I'm evolving eyes. Well, now we can do that. You're working on that right here, right now, how that works. But they aren't evolving their eyes right. from no eyes. The genetics are involved all in all there, this, yeah. okay? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, if you, you, you can't have a partially evolved um, backbone. I mean, what would a person do? Or, Not much. <laughs> yeah. Or you're thinking, wait a minute. I mean, my hands are mirror images of each other. Well, that's totally different genetics. I mean, you got to have genetics for each one. Right. But they have, to, they have to work. And there's, just think of the complicated genetic information that's in there yeah. when we start thinking about these things. So I became a convinced young earth creationist. Then actually, uh, I ultimately resigned my professorship to go to, uh, the dental students were asking questions that I could not answer. I thought, I'm going to go to Dallas Seminary, mm -hmm. which is really just across the street from Baylor Dental College. Yeah. So I got accepted 
and then went to the dean of the dental school and said, look, I've been accepted over there and I'd like to come over here at the dental school part-time for the next four years while I work on my THM. And uh, he said, no, mm -mm. you either stay here full-time or you go there full-time. I'm not going to let you do both. So we just took that as God telling us, resign your professor. I was a full professor with tenure at that point. Wow. And uh, it's like, God, no, nope, just, just resign it and I'll take care of you. So that's what we did. Bit of faith there for sure, yeah. Well, I had a wife backing me up and I had two daughters backing me up at that point, little, little girls. And uh, so that's how we got over in the seminary. Right. But then uh, I couldn't go back to the dental school. Right. So the Lord opened up all kinds of ways to minister from that point on. Absolutely. And that leads us to, uh, well, eventually, right? Uh, your yeah. ministry now, Biblical Discipleship Ministries. Yes. And I know that a lot of it is centered around, you know, animals, but, but that's not, it's not just about animals, right? Right. I wrote a book called The Evolution of a Creationist, which was my testimony, basically. Right. Yeah. But in between each chapter, I have an animal, like the bombarder beetle, the giraffe, the woodpecker. And people called up, hey, we just read that book. Could you do some live pictures of these animals? Mm -hmm. So that's when we did our first series, Incredible Creatures That Defy Evolution. And that's been all over everywhere. I mean, we didn't do much about it, but everywhere. People have seen it in China. and I would, we, we just had a missionary from China we just talked to. And uh, she's talking away. And she said, and yeah, I was using your incredible creatures in my classes in China. I'm thinking, what? Anyway, God used it. He yeah. still is using it. And uh, so we did that one, and then people kept saying, well, do more animals, do more animals. Well, then that, that led us to study animals like Frank knows all about. Mm -hmm. that, well, we'll get to you, Frank. Yeah, nobody <laughs> ever heard of, you know, like the I.I. and the Weta and the Slow Loris. Have you studied the Slow Loris? No. Don't know what it is. <laughs> is that right? Isn't that too bad? Yeah, shame on me. It is. Don't tell Frank. <laughs> that, because we live in Satan's world system. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything could not possibly evolve, we're not allowed to know about it. Yeah. That's one of the reasons we did all these DVDs, to let people know what God did so they can give him honor. What's the whole purpose? People come to know Jesus as a result. And the saints are encouraged. I can trust my Bible. Okay, slow Loris. It's the only venomous primate. You can't have a venomous primate, according to evolution, okay? So they won't, it has venom glands under its arm, right in here. And when it needs venom, it just licks the gland. I can't get mine up there anymore. <laughs> this, Practice this, that flexibility uh, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think this one's a metal. Uh, this one's, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, yeah, it'll lick it and, and mix it with saliva, and then it bites, venom. That's, that, venom is with a bite. Mm -hmm. Poison, you swallow. Uh, we did some of those animals. People kept saying, do more, do more, do more. Well, then we took a trip to Alaska. A family up there, the Peranian family, she's a, he's a pilot with Alaskan Airlines. He said, if you'll just come up, I'll fly you up, and we'll take care of you. And they really did. We got to see the humpback whales with their bubble nets mm -hmm. coming up. You know, with their mouths open, three at a time we saw, and, and we saw the puffins and the mares, and we saw these beautiful birds. And we thought, you know what, we need to do that. We need to make some vi videos with all these Alaskan animals. Mm -hmm. So we started with one, one video. 
and that went to two, and now we're finishing, I think, at three. Unless you find more animals. <laughs> We've already found more animals. But it's like There's someone said, <laughs> we need to do barnyard animals. Everyone wants you to leave Alaska. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you think, I mean, like a caribou. I mean, unbelievable. But a caribou, it's the only deer that the female has antlers too. And you'd say, well, why did God make it so there's one deer with the female has antlers? Well, because in the wintertime, when the males lose their antlers, like after the mating season, maybe late November, early December, you get into January now, we're in a blizzard, and uh, Mama Caribou is pregnant, and uh, she needs good food. So she'll find a nice lichen bed, and she'll dig down there and find it, and here comes this bull over. Hey, I want those, I want those lichens. And she says, well, I'm sorry, sir. I found these lichens. I'm going to eat my lichens. And, nope, I'm the bull. Just move it. She says, well, I'm sorry, sir. I have the antlers. <clears throat> you move it. Mm -hmm. So God made it so she can protect the best food, and then she loses her antlers in the spring. So, I mean, and she can see ultraviolet light. So like a polar bear thinks I'm going to have, I'm going to have myself a caribou for lunch. Well, because she sees ultraviolet light and the polar bear hair absorbs ultraviolet light, it looks black to her. So there's this polar bear sneaking up, you know. Nobody <laughs> sees me in this snow. I'm white. Nobody sees me. And the, and the caribou says, here comes that polar bear. Okay, come on. Well, let's give him a little more time and then we better move. I mean, it's like God thought of everything. Mm. And, and they control the temperature in their legs. So, I mean, if, if it's really cold, they need the temperature to keep their brains warm, keep their organs warm. As the artery comes down the leg, it comes up close to the vein. So the vein is coming up with really cold blood. The artery is going down with really warm blood. Mm. But because they're right next to each other, it transfers over. So when the blood from the uh, vein in the leg comes up to the heart, it's warmed up again. But they can control that somehow. Maybe they only need 45-degree legs. Maybe they don't need 38-degree legs. They control that somehow. I've not read an article yet where they tell us how. Have you read anything about no, that? No, uh -uh. Countercurrent system. Absolutely amazing. It is. It is. There's other animals have that. Uh -huh. And um, so anyway, it's just amazing. Yeah, well, I wanted to also know with Dr. Frank, you know, um, if your background with animals and all of that, um, if you could give our audience, I don't know if everyone is familiar with even for you if you were an evolutionist at one point, and just some of those things that pulled you in the same direction as Dr. Martin. Well, it's interesting, and we have kind of the same uh, uh, background a little bit. I was never agnostic. I was uh, belonged to a religion that uh, depended very much on works. And so I believed in God and all. And, and I uh, graduated the bottom of my class in high school. <laughs> I got a D in high school biology. And then I got into a college only because my grandfather, who, who his best friend was a billionaire out of Nebraska. And so he talked to his billionaire friend of getting this dumb guy, me, <laughs> into a college. And so I got into the college and immediately was put on probation, both sci uh, academic and social probation. I won't go down that road. But uh, <laughs> put on two kinds of probation, and the end of the school year, they kicked me out. And so I was immediately drafted by the Army, so I quickly joined the Navy instead. Mm -hmm. 
uh, for another two years. <laughs> and so I went to boot camp and then I went to jet engine training school. Then I went to a squadron on the West Coast where we immediately left for Vietnam on board the USS Constellation. And so I was working up on the flight deck and it was a very dangerous place, very dangerous. And I thought, if I get killed, <laughs> I'm not in good standing with God. Well, about this time, the Navigator Ministry that was active in Colorado Springs had a Bible study, and somehow I got hooked up with them. There was a, a guy in my division who was a very bold Christian, very bold. He was built like a refrigerator, not an ounce of fat, and he wasn't arrogant, but he was, he was quite bold. And I thought, boy, if I ever became a Christian, yeah, he, he was quite the model. And, and, and so he took me to a fellowship in the ship's chapel, USS Constellation, January of 71. And the third verse is, just as I am, I went forward and received Christ. And there's a tiny ship's chapel for an aircraft carrier. I think it doubled as a broom closet, but um, <laughs> um, I got saved. I was still an evolutionist, still an evolutionist. I couldn't bring myself to believe in the opening chapters of Genesis. But when I was working on the jet engine shop, working on these big J79 engines that went into the Phantom II and all that, somebody had left a little booklet on the jet engine test stand called, Have You Been Brainwashed? by hmm. Dwayne Gish. Hmm. And I didn't know who this guy Gish was, but I read the booklet and I was amazed of the scientific evidence against evolution and the scientific evidence in favor of creation. So I read that two or three times and I was hooked. I began to study creation science in this organization in California called the Institute for Creation Research. Never heard of it. Mm. Never heard of it. <laughs> and uh, so I got out of the Navy and went to college, majored in biology, and uh, was using ICR literature as I was taking my biology classes. Graduated, uh, joined a city fire department for about five years, and when I was on the fire department uh, up in Estes Park, Colorado, there was a, an ICR speaker named Gary Parker. So I drove up my little car up there with a, a cassette player and a fistful of cassettes, and I recorded every word that Gary Parker said. He did a Saturday seminar. He spoke hour after hour after hour, took uh, a lunch break, then he spoke again until finally the, his host has to get up and said, listen, we gotta be out of here two hours ago. <laughs> and so I had all of these tapes of Gary Parker with his lectures, and for the next year and a half, I listened to those tapes, I can still, I say him today because I listen to him. And so um, the Lord led me to quit the fire department to go to the University of Northern Colorado, get my master's degree in invertebrate zoology. And so I uh, got into parasites and um, discovered a new species, uh, named it uh, Acuaria coloradensis. And um, so got my master's degree and then just went on from there. It's interesting, the, the similarity in the stories and also mm -hmm. I, I, was, I was wondering maybe someone who never had an evolutionary belief. So this is coming from someone who's, who's never, never fully indoctrinated into evolution. Um, what is it that makes, this is to both of y'all, uh, what is it that when you first become a Christian, what makes it so difficult to like push the evolution aside? What, what makes that so hard? Why is that so insidious even? Well, that's a good question. And it is hard. Well, at least it was for me. And it's because we've been brainwashed. Mm -hmm. it, it has changed the way your brain works. It, it literally has done something to your brain. And you have to work through that. I still find myself from time to time, 
talking about creation using evolutionary terms. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't even catch myself sometimes. It's like it's just built into us because everything about Satan's world system is deception. And when deception is, is there, it, is, it can be very complete. And so it's only by God's grace that we get pulled out of deception. So it's God's grace and His Word. Actually, the thing that pulled me into being a Christian was John 3.16. And you're thinking, poof, that's a simple verse. Yeah, it but it was the first phrase. It was, for God so loved the world. And I'm thinking, I'm part of the world. I love the world. I love the things in the world. This is when I'm in the Air Force. Right. And I thought, that must mean God loves me. Now, that's after I had met my wife, and I thought God did that. I'm reading John 3.16 one morning, and, and it's, that's what God used for me. For God so loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son, that's Jesus, and whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Mm -hmm. I got down on my knees with a fellow named Charlie Warford, put my faith and trust in Jesus that day. It was January 1967. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Just a few years before. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Dr. Sherwin, how about you? Well, I, you know, after I listened to those uh, tapes by Dr. Gary Parker, he went through a testimony very much like you know, um, Job and I did. And, and he was teaching evolution and he was challenged by some of his students and all. And so that really made a mark with me. And, and so. Uh, when I listened to those tapes over and over again, it made sense of what he was saying. And I had already had my degree in biology. And so many of the questions I had as an undergraduate in biology, Gary Parker answered in that whole Saturday seminar. But then when I went to graduate school, my major professor was also a militant atheist. And I thought, if he's going to be my graduate professor, I... I think I should let him know, you know, that I was at least a Christian. And so I told him that. And I remember he sat back in his squeaky office chair and he ruminated. He kind of thought for a while. And he said, well, okay, as long as you understand I'm an atheist and I require all of my students to take a course in evolution. So this is a, a 500 level course in evolution, not some little undergraduate thing. This is the hardcore evolution class. Well, by that time, I felt that I, I knew enough about creation science and all. And I said, that's fine. I, I would probably would have taken it anyway just to see what it was. Well, the class turned out to be really an advanced genetics class. And we talked a lot about natural limits to biological change. And so I was sitting in the front row taking lots of notes, but I didn't hear one fact of real vertical evolution. That is what we call macro evolution. And so that was kind of an eye-opener for me, that so much was philosophical indoctrination, but without, here's the empirical evidence that shows that we came from a fish. It wasn't there. <laughs> and so um, I always kept those notes. I still have them today. And... Um, so that was that was a turning point for me when I realized a lot of it was just mirrors and smoke. I mean, I, as I'm, I'm listening, you know, I think a lot of people would say evolution has nothing to do with religion. You know, it, from maybe an evolutionary standpoint, if I'm an evolutionist, that why are you bringing up maybe Christianity if we're talking about evolution? But it's interesting to see how, as you guys described your backgrounds, because of that evolution. Um, just mindset, that worldview, that framework, then it did mess with your your spiritual understanding of God or, you know, you had to work through that. So just because of, um, there, there just are certain things connected to evolution that will 
um, impose themselves on the way you view God or anything related to faith. So just, I love um, you guys being open and honest about your journey through that. You think five years? Why couldn't somebody just tell me something and oh, okay, I'm a Christian, I believe it, look what the Bible says right here. No, it wasn't that easy. Mm -hmm. But then once you realize we can trust the Bible, it is true, there's no way evolution, big bang to molecules to life to man could happen. It's totally impossible. The evolutionists really admit that in their literature when they're saying this suggests or this is probably or maybe or we hope, you know, what they're really saying is, you know what, this is all in my head. And you don't my, know. Yeah, yeah. My science proves actually there is a God, there is a design in creation. That's what my science proves. Well, it's like, I think it was Dr. George Wald said, you know what, there's really only two options. This is a paraphrase. There's two options. Spontaneous generation, which would be big bang to molecules to life to man over millions of years, or special creation. He said, those are the only two options we have. He said, Louis Pasteur and others over 100 years ago proved spontaneous generation doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So that only leaves us one option special creation. But he says, I refuse philosophically to believe in God, so I'm here. It must have been spontaneous generation, even though all the science says it can't be. I mean, basically, he is that clear. Denial, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So you pray for people like that. Well, he's already dead. But I mean, evolutions, we talk, we pray for them. Because mm -hmm. we're, we're bumping into them all the time. And, uh, and we have little animal cards we made, little animal card tracks. And, uh, and like on our last trip, there was a rest stop, and here's this Buddhist monk. Well, they intimidate me, okay? So he's standing under a tree, and uh, I'm coming back, getting in the car, and my three ladies are already in the car. I said, well, did any of you give an animal tract or anything to the Buddhist monk out there? No. Dad, why don't you? <laughs> no, I don't want to, okay? But okay, so I went out, I'm talking to this Buddhist monk, and I went praying, they're praying for me. I said, well, Lord, what am I gonna say to this guy? I, uh, he was from Thailand, and we're talking along, and, and I said, well, now, what do you think about Jesus? No, Jesus, just like that. So he knew about Jesus, and he didn't want to hear another thing about Jesus. Okay, I thought that's fascinating, okay? They're supposed to be open-minded. Uh, they want everybody to be enlightened, okay? Right. But I did, I, I had uh, some animal cards, okay? I don't remember which ones I gave him. I have a giraffe here. I, I gave him some animal cards, our little tracks. He took them. So I'm praying for the Buddhist monk. You might pray, he comes to know Jesus. Those cards, so you're using animal examples. So let's go back and forth, if we can go more into that. Both of you, just a few more examples of animals and how we can see that it's it's from a creator and that we give you know God that credit. Let's pick your favorites. Okay. Or either your personal favorites or the ones that you think are the most compelling. Okay, go ahead, Frank. I wanna hear your favorite. <laughs> well, I have so many favorites, but I really like the relationship between the moth and the bat. You know, bats are designed by the creator to have this ultrasonic 
capability. It's, it's a sonar and it can paint its environment so well with its sonar and take in all that information that they can see with their sonar as well as we can see with our eyes. But as the infomercial says, wait, there's more. Because as this uh, bat is sending out its sonar impulses, it's so loud that it's coming from its nasal region that it could hurt the eardrum. And so the creator with his uh, design properties has made the moth to have a special skeletal muscle in the, the ear, eardrum of the bat, of the bat. And so as the bat sends out an ultrasonic pulse, which is in a, almost a millisecond, this skeletal muscle contracts in the inner ear that closes it off so it doesn't deafen itself by sending out these very high sonar pitches way beyond human hearing. And so it's able to paint its environment using that and then this information is reflected back all within a split second. So the bat, as it picks up something, like for example, a delicious uh, moth, which is nocturnal, uh, the moth is trying to evade the bat. The bat homes in, and as the bat is homing in, on the surface of the wing of the bat are special receptors, pressure receptors, that has only been discovered in the last couple of years. So that as the bat is making its adjustments, course adjustments, these receptors are sending information up to the bat brain, which one of the, is one of the main reasons why it can make such uh, critical adjustments in its flight within quite literally a fraction of a second. So it's all this information is coming in through the bat wing, coming in through the reflected uh, information of the sonar, and all has to be uh, purposed and, and put together in the little tiny bat brain within a fraction of a second so it can make its course adjustments. Uh, that is just absolutely incredible how, and, and time and chance and natural processes cannot explain how you could get a bat sonar. We have the megabats and the microbats, and those are the two groups, one group having this ability for sonar. There is sonar, for example, in the cetaceans, uh, the sea creatures, the mammals, uh, which is also very, very unique. And it has a special structure in the head of the sea creature, like a porpoise or a dolphin that has, it's called a melon, and it has special oil that helps with the transmission of the information. So we see, as what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, God's design is not only seen, but Paul adds an extra word. It's clearly seen. Clearly seen, we could say, Painfully obvious. <laughs> Painfully obvious. I like that. <laughs> and there's also some moths mm -hmm. that can give sonar back to the bat to confuse it. Yeah. Which is amazing. You yeah. know, so they can talk back to the bat, tell the bat, go that way instead of this way. Yeah. <laughs> so they're all the way down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. Well, my favorite animal is a giraffe. And it was one of the very first ones I studied. And it's stuck with me ever since. And I have shared the, the giraffe since probably 1972. So I will go places and some family will come up, and the dad or the mom, Dr. Martin, when I was in first grade or Sunday school or somewhere, and you came and you told us about a giraffe, I want you to know it took me all the way through college. Whenever I got to thinking, maybe that professor is right with his evolutionary ideas, God would remind me, yeah, but there's no way the giraffe could evolve. And it brings me, it's kind of like spiritual insurance for kids. And we've had that time after time, young people, dad, they're now dads and moms have said that. So the giraffe, 18 feet tall, a bull giraffe average, powerful pump, 
to pump the blood up that neck against gravity, okay? Like it weighs up to 25 pounds. It's like a big turkey in there, okay? And when it squeezes, it shoots that blood against gravity, and he does fine. Now he's going to bend his head down and get a drink of water. And the big heart goes squeeze, and the blood goes zoom, and it hits his brains and blows his brains out his ears. And he has to be thinking, I got a problem. When I bend my head down to get a drink of water, I blow my brains out. I don't think at that point he's thinking much of anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, he doesn't blow his brains out. Why? Because as he bends his head down, uh, our Creator, the Lord Jesus, by the way, God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit through the agency of Jesus created everything. The, the whole Godhead was involved in the creation. Matter of fact, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, plural, mm -hmm created third person singular verb so god is one but he is three okay so uh jesus created which gives him the right and the authority to be the savior because only the create the creator would have the right to save his particular creature which is us okay so the creator is the savior the creator makes the giraffe when he's bending his head down our Creator, Lord Jesus, built little valves, like little spigots in the artery that goes up the neck. They close. But the last pulse of blood is beyond that last valve, and it's under enough pressure to burst the little arterioles in the brain when his head is down. But the last pulse of blood doesn't go into the brain. The last pulse of blood goes whoop into like a sponge. The rete mirabilis, okay, or rete mirabilis as some say, that expands. It's like a sponge. He doesn't blow his brains out. He gets his drink of water. Now he sees some wildebeest running toward him. He ignores them. He sees a lion coming toward him. Oh, the lion wants to eat me. By the way, how does it know the wildebeest doesn't want to eat it and the lion does? Okay. He says, I got to get out of here. So he jumps up. He runs about three steps. Boom. Passes out. Not enough oxygen to the brain. So while the lion is eating him, he has to be thinking, I got another problem here. <laughs> when I get up too fast, I pass out, and the lions eat me. I'm going to have to evolve something here to fix this problem. Well, dead animals can't evolve anything to fix any problem, all right? But of course, he doesn't pass out, because as he brings his head up, those valves open. And by the way, you can't have a partially evolved valve, or he's dead. Okay, so they had to be created fully functional. That sponge under the brain gently squeezes that last pulse of oxygenated blood up into his brain. He's doing just fine. Only God could do that. That's all there is to it. I have shared that on university campuses just full of atheists and evolutionists. And I've, I've said, okay, somebody tell me, how did that evolve? You know what their answer is? Given enough time, it'll happen. I said, well, what's the mechanism? Over time, it'll show up. Okay, I mean, they don't have an answer because they don't have an answer. Right. God had to do it, just like he says. He spoke it into existence. And you think about that. Look what he spoke into existence. Animals that can live in the jungle. Animals that can live in the ice and snow. Totally different diets. Totally different feet, even. So they can run like a polar bear. Different kind of feet. So it can run on the ice, doesn't slip. A, a caribou. So in the winter, its hoof gets hard so that it can chip through the ice. In the summer, it gets soft so it can spread out and walk on top of the tundra so it doesn't sink in because the surface is going to thaw. I mean, God, God thought of every detail. The caribou, total different digestion. 
in the winter than in the summer. All right? In the same animal. Same animal. And in the winter, it eats snow. In the summer, it drinks water out of a stream. What's the difference? Well, when it eats snow, it's not getting minerals. If it gets more minerals, that means it has to get rid of the minerals that it doesn't need, which means it has to get rid of excess water, which means it's getting rid not only of water, but heat. So by eating snow, it can keep the water. It doesn't make it have to go to the bathroom. So now it's keeping the heat. And then when it breathes out, it doesn't make steam because its turbinate bones are like a rolled up newspaper. So when it breathes out, these bones, they pull all the moisture back out so it's not losing moisture. I mean, God thought of everything. I mean, jungle animals. Well, we're not going to go there. But I mean, the same thing. You're thinking, but he knew all that before he spoke any of it into existence. Smarter than we are. Think about that. He knew what they needed. He knew after the fall, after the curse, after the flood, animals are going to need different equipment for different things. Because I think he put the dread between man and beast in Genesis 9. Now, Now the flood is over. They're out of the ark. And God says, hey, Noah, if you can catch T. rex, you can eat them. Genesis 9, verse 3. Okay, Genesis 9, verse 5. T-Rex, if you can catch Noah, now you can eat him. And that would have saved a lot of trouble on the ark. He didn't have to take freezers full of frozen lamb to feed the lions. Everything at that point is still eating plant life. Genesis 1, 30, that's what he said you're going to eat. Genesis 9, the flood is over. He says, okay, now, Noah, he said, You, I gave you the green herb, but now I'm giving you this meat too. You can go, if you can catch it, you can eat it. (laughs) So he changed changed the rules, which meant things changed. So before the flood, I think everything, everything was still eating plants. Now, can lions eat plants? Well, of course they do. Your cat gets sick. What does it do? It goes out in the yard and eats grass, eats whatever it can find. Mm-hmm. Your dog, what's... In World War II, we were sending all of our meat over to feed our soldiers in Africa and Europe and over that way. They fed the big cats in the zoos soybeans. They thrived, okay? Just because an animal has big teeth doesn't mean it has to eat meat, okay? But they can Well, uh, Dr. Sherwin, do you have uh, any other examples, Uh, maybe from your invertebrate line of thought? Yeah, let's let's talk about something a little weird. (laughs) Yeah, well, trying to think uh, some of the invertebrate creatures, uh, mostly what we find, for example, in tidal pools. And uh, there's lots and lots of invertebrates there. As a matter of fact, 95% of all fossils are marine invertebrates, which are like clams. But I think some of the more fascinating marine invertebrates, invertebrates, of course, is the octopus. And the octopus is absolutely 
incredible from from the get-go. It, it is so bizarre and so strange because it's one of the few, very few animals that can alter its RNA, its ribonucleic acid. Uh, they haven't been able to see that in any other kind of animal. It also has eyes very much like our eyes, like a vertebrate's eyes, but of course the octopus is an invertebrate. And so the problem with that is, from an evolutionary standpoint, trying to explain how you could have the octopus eye that looks so much like a vertebrate or a human eye. But also at the same time, there are structures on the surface of the skin of the octopus called chromatophores. These chromatophores are, are microscopic, but they are nonetheless absolutely amazing in the fact that it can secrete into the skin, the chromatophore, uh, pigments. And the pigment change can be affected within a split second. And we've seen videos, and you can go on YouTube and see how an octopus, octopus can swim up to an outcrop of rock and immediately take on the shape and also the color of that uh, rock output just within a fraction of a second. Well, that means the octopus has to have a special neuroregulatory system from its brains, and it has multiple brains, uh, going down to these uh, chromatophores affecting the change within a split second. Uh, it has uh, suckers, and the suckers have detectors, receptors on it that it can taste with the suckers. And uh, octopus has eight arms, but it uses two. It, it, it uses two more than the other six. Uh, I remember a story that shows an octopus, dare I say it, might have something like a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, some of the keepers of an oct octopus uh, tank, uh, one decided to give one of uh, an octopus one of its favorite foods, which is a shrimp. But the shrimp was already starting to turn. It was already starting to kind of get musky and all that. And so the female octopus, it's always a female, it's a smarter, of course, of the, of the two genders. And uh, <laughs> she was watching this guy holding the shrimp through the tank. Well, at that point, the octopus didn't know it was bad. And so the, the handler went up and put the shrimp up to the tank right up at the edge here and the octopus put up her arm grabbed the shrimp and immediately could tell that it was it was funky it wasn't too good and always stay staring right at the individual she took that shrimp and jammed it down into the drain of her tank <laughs> and just staring at her you know as if yeah real funny yeah. <laughs> i'm not gonna eat this yeah that's <laughs> it yeah and an octopus uh, when they first started working with them they would put the octopus in the tank in the research facility i would have two or three of them and leave for the evening and they would come back and there would be pandemonium in the laboratory because octopus loves to work with the valves mm -hmm. and the lights there they put up their arms were able to pull the lights down uh, flooding all sorts of things it, plus they realized the octopus could leave its tank scurry across the floor get up into another tank of invertebrates animals without a backbone such as uh, crabs and lobsters and things like and <laughs> The octopus would have a smorgasbord yeah. and just eat all those creatures. <laughs> uh, and the uh, uh, octopus, for example, loves the blue crab. And they would finish their smorgasbord in the middle of the night, go back to their tank, crawl back in. And in the morning, the researchers would come in and see a tank full of shells. <laughs> And I the, was here the whole time. <laughs> and the octopus is going, mm -hmm. what? Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, that really is one of my, my favorite creatures. They are just incredible.
Yeah, definitely some design there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And by the way, octopus has always been octopus because uh, an octopus it has no internal internal skeleton or anything. One evolutionist said to have an octopus fossil is liking a, like finding a fossil of a sneeze because it's just a kind of a gelatinous type thing. But they have found very clear impressions of octopus in the fossil record, which leads one to believe, well, let's see now, it had to be buried suddenly and catastrophically uh, no time frame at all because it's it's all made of a gelatinous ooze. So we're talking about a very catastrophic burial, kind of like you would get with a um, uh, a flood. And maybe a flood could do something <laughs> yeah. like that. And uh, not only that, but giraffes have always been giraffes. Whales have always been whales. And, and just on down the list it goes. As a matter of fact, one other thing about the whale is whales, of course, are marine mammals. And um, whales don't get cancer, and that's kind of a, a strange situation. So there's a lot of research to be done there. But whales, as they dive down, they have to expel all the air so they don't get nitrogen narcosis, the bends. And whales have a very, very dark skeletal muscle. The skeletal muscle of the uh, mammalian uh, oceanic mammals is almost black. And that's due to a special protein called myoglobin, which is a, a hemoglobin type of a, uh, a type of a molecule, but is found encased in the muscle. Mm -hmm. And so we, we have hemoglobin in our blood. So as the whale dives down, it ex exhales, ex exhales the air, and it can go down many, many feet, and the uh, everything shuts down except to the heart and the brain. So the heart still is beating, and it's beating, uh, putting up the blood to the brain to keep it alive. Everything else is shut down. How come the tissue doesn't die? Goes back to that myoglobin. That myoglobin is packed packed with oxygen. So the whale can stay down, down there for a long time, extracting oxygen from the myoglobin, which is packed in the muscle, and then come back up. So it's just amazing, amazing design features. So that, that's what helps sperm whales, I suppose? I didn't know about that, because they dive yeah. really deep. Yeah, they do. They real deep, and, and, and you just look at the muscle, and it's almost, it is, it's almost black wow. due to all that myoglobin. And I love hearing all these examples. And I know that we talk about, you know, as ICR, we talk about creation being evidence for someone to believe in God. But I was wondering if you guys would give encouragement to, because we have people who listen to our, you know, podcasts or read our materials who are Christians, but still haven't, you know, fully, they're maybe theistic evolutionists or haven't given into every form of uh, what we're saying as creation ministries. Um, so what would be your encouragement or it just sounds like your faith is a little more enriched and that's all I'm going to say because I want you guys to explain just what you would share with someone who hasn't fully stepped into that. I can tell you what one of the biggest hang-ups is, is those days in Genesis. And people just can't, uh, that was a struggle I had. They just can't get by the billions of years because they're, we basically are taught billions of years will solve all the problems. Just give it enough time. And, and we get stuck on that. But you can't get billions of years out of the Bible, even though we have the progressive creationists and the theistic evolutionists, which is what I was, and the day-age people and all that. Uh, when we look at what it says in Genesis, it, that word yom, which is the Hebrew word for day, with a number every time in the Hebrew means normal day. Okay, Then each of, the, each of those days, half light, half dark. 
Sounds like a normal day. If those days are a billion years each, you'd have 500 million years of darkness followed by 500 million years of unrelenting light, if we're going to take it that way. We know that doesn't work. And then Genesis 1.14, it says there were days, there were seasons, there were years. So God, in Genesis chapter 1, compares a day to a season and to a year. Verse 14, well, if a day is a billion years, how long is a season? See? How long is a year? Doesn't even make sense. It said Adam was 930 years old when he died. Okay, he lived through, let's say, half of the sixth day. He lived through all of the seventh day. A day equals a billion years. Okay, was Adam 1,500,930,000 years old when he died? No, nobody says that, okay. Uh, did Esther fast for three billion years? Well, no. You know, we know she was skinny when she finished. <laughs> Absolutely not. We know what those words mean, okay? How long was Jonah in the belly of the great fish? Oh, yeah, three billion years. It's the same words as Genesis. Mm. There's only one place in the Bible people say that the word day with a number doesn't mean normal day. And that's because they come to the Bible with these preconceived ideas constructed and built into them through evolutionary thinking. Well, even... Even you get to the Ten Commandments. Genesis chapter 20, verse 9, talking to people. God says, Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Now you work over here. Yeah, not for six billion years then. Okay, <laughs> so you're sure of that. Yeah, we know Pretty what positive. that means, right? There's no question what that means. God says, hey, you guys, you work. Six days shalt thou work. Do, do all thy labor. Then he says in verse 11, for... In six days, same kind of days you people work, I worked, and within a six-day week made up of the same kind of days you people work, I made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that in them is. So God says, look, I made everything that I made within a six-day week made up of the same kind of days you people work. Now, can he get any more clear than that? Oh, yeah, but the Bible says a day is like a thousand years. You know, that, 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 those days in Genesis, they could be any amount of time. Well, you got to put that in context, okay? God talks about three judgments in 2 Peter 3. Second coming judgment, flood judgment, this coming, it's all going to burn up. Al Gore's timing is off. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be at least another thousand and seven years, as far as I can tell. But anyway, all right. So right in the middle of talking about these judgments, God says that he's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And right before that, he says, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years as a day to God. Now, he, he's above time. He tells us that. But I think all he's saying right there is, look, as I wait for you to come to repentance, a day is like a thousand years. But on the day that you would come to repentance, if you waited a thousand years, if I waited a thousand years, it'd be like a day. I think that's all he's saying. Some people say, yeah, but look at the genealogical tables. There could be millions of years missing there. Well, how does that help? Because evolution says people were the last things to evolve. Well, if people are already here, and that's what the genealogical tables are, and you had millions of years missing in the genealogical tables. How does that help? <laughs> exactly. People are already, that means everything else is already here when the genealogical tables start, if you believe in evolution. Never even thought about that. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah it doesn't help at all. And that's, the problem would be that if a theistic evolutionist looks at Adam and Eve as a metaphor, 
But then the author of, of Genesis makes it so clear about the gene genealogical record. So does that mean the Lord Jesus came ultimately from a metaphor? Uh, that's where it breaks down as well. But what I like to tell people who are being raised in a theistic evolutionist environment in a college or a university, I, I like to share with them that there are natural limits to biological change. Amen. And that we can do, uh, you know, we can change, uh, get thousands of different varieties of roses, but they're all roses. So there's a lot of what we call horizontal variation. Uh, same thing with dogs and, and all that. But we don't find that real vertical macro evolution. I challenge him to look at the literature, to ask the professors, Give me compelling evidence for real vertical evolution. Otherwise, all the examples, the class I took in evolution in Colorado was all just a, a genetics class where we looked at the natural biological uh, changes, but they were limited changes that, that occurred. And, and of course, you know, the theological interpretation in Genesis. Um, it, Paul says in Corinthians that God is not the author of confusion. So he made it very, very clear about the days of creation. And that when you talk to a cosmologist, he or she will tell you that we live in a universe composed of time and space and matter. And when you look at Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, that's time, God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, matter. So in the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the book of books, God who has always existed, we don't try and explain where God came from, He has always existed, spoke into existence this ex nihilo creation of time, space, and matter. That is so profound, as one of the most profound scientific statements, if I can use that phrase, that I've ever heard. And that um, no other religious book in the world begins like that. Uh, other religions begin with fire, wind, earth, water, and I'm not denigrating them, but the Bible stands unique and set apart as beginning with God, speaking into existence, the time-space-matter universe. From nothing. From yeah. nothing. Yeah. Well, uh, I just I really want to thank you both for all mm -hmm. of your perspective. Uh, it's, it's been a blast getting to talk to you all. I will plug, of course, The Amazing Animals of Alaska, Volume 3. We'll have a link in our description here, so for anyone who wants to go and check that out. Um, and, and you have them right here in your bookstore. And we do. We have them. If you're in Dallas, Texas, feel free to stop by and, and, and buy one in person, and, and we'll be glad for you to do that. Any other closing thoughts before we uh, end the episode? Well, we have a faithful Lord and a faithful Savior. And when you think, uh, what does he ask of us, basically? What Jesus say? Love me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two greatest commandments. And if we do that, all the other things fall into place. And so, but that's impossible without him. So he tells us there in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. So it's not my life. Well, this is my life. No, it isn't your life if you're a Christian. It's Jesus' life. He, what's he tell us to do? Die. Reckon yourself dead, Romans 6. Put on Jesus. And so when we put on Jesus, that's where the miracles are. And that's where the impossible comes from. And yeah, and that makes relationships work. I mean, you can, you can love your wife. Well, I mean, what if she's a dud? Mine isn't, by the way. Right. But I've had men tell me that. Oh, she's just a dud. Wait a minute. God doesn't say, love your wife, but if she's a dud, it's okay. 
throw her away. No. He says, love your wife, husband. By how do we do that? By God's grace. As Jesus loves through us. And he wants to love these unbelievers through us. And these evolutionists that will look you in the eye and cuss you out and everything else. But we love them because God loves them. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you all so much. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, and thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, please make sure to like, subscribe, share this video with your friends, and we'll see you next time on creation.live.